Over the past year, the issue of disrepair in social housing properties has risen in prominence to become one of the country's key social issues. This has been brought to light by the long-term ITV News investigation, which has featured cases where residents have been living in appalling conditions. These case studies have painted a picture where tenants have been ignored by their landlords for months and sometimes years. This has been matched by a huge uptick in disrepair claims facing social housing landlords. In this episode of the Housing Podcast, we'll ask what is behind the rising number of disrepair claims being brought against social landlords? Hello, I'm Jack Simpson, news editor here at Inside Housing. And today for the Housing Podcast, I'm joined by senior reporter Grania Cuff. Say hello, Grania. Hi, Jack. Hey, um, so today we've got a really uh, special podcast, actually. Um, we're going to be looking at the rising number of disrepair cases in the social housing sector. Granny, you've been doing lots and lots of work on this in the past couple of months, particularly looking at the rising number of legal claims residents are bringing against councils and housing associations over the state of their properties. Do you just want to give us a bit of an overview in terms of what you've been looking at and what you found? Sure, we'll do, Jack. Um, basically, this kind of came about because last year, Lambeth Council published a document about the number of disrepair claims it was uh, that, that it was having or the tenants were bringing against it. And they had risen in four years by 600 percent. And the wow. council was yeah, the council was also paying out three million a year to deal with the claims, so like, quite a significant issue. Um, so from that, I I kind of wanted to find out, you know, are other councils facing the same problems? Um, and I did an FOI of all stock owning councils across England. Um, mm. and here is what I found. So it showed that there have been nearly seventeen thousand disrepair claims brought against seventy councils in the past five years. So okay. with more than 55 million paid out, but the figures will be much higher than that because about 100 councils didn't provide data. Okay. Um, there's also been an exponential rise. Legal costs nearly doubled between 2017-18 and 2020-21. Um, and the number of cases increased by 132%. Of the okay. cases have provided data for every year, 91% saw an increase in costs, while 93% saw an increase in cases. Um, wow! Problems. So it's it's it's, it's a, yeah, and across the the whole sort of um, council landscape, really, it seems from those those sort of fig- figures. And yeah. um, so, obviously, you've got you've got this information, and you've kind of been trying to sort of unpick over the last couple of weeks, sort of why and how. And um, the first person you've kind of spoken to on this issue was Quajo Twemboa. Um, and he's obviously become very prominent in recent, well, months um, on social media and a number of TV programmes. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of an activist, his main aim is to sort of drive forward better conditions in the social housing sector, isn't it? Um, he's having a massive impact. Can you just tell us a little bit about him, Grania? Oh, yeah, he's doing um, really great work. So he's a social housing activist. Basically, he himself was living in disrepair with his siblings and his father. And his father had cancer at the time. He's tragically passed away since. Um, but his landlord was Clarion. And he basically took it upon himself to take Clarion on 
and he got like their housing fixed and he also galvanized other people on the estate. It was in the Eastfield estate um, yeah. in Merton. And, you know, he got other week, went around knocking on doors, like getting them to take action as well. Um, and he was successful in the end. Uh, but he, I really wanted to speak to him to kind of understand the impact this repair has on people because that's obviously the most important mm-hmm. issue here. Um, yeah, so here he is uh, doing just that. Okay, let's listen to him. It's very underestimated just how big and how bad um, this situation with disrepair across the country is. I even think I know the true extent, and I've spoken to thousands of tenants across the country. I often think of the people that I do help, and then I think of the thousands of others that I don't even know exist, who I'm not able to meet, who I'm not able to speak up for, who I'm not able to go about and visit and talk to. Um, It is definitely underestimated. I don't think people understand the true extent to how bad this is um, and how it affects people's lives. Ultimately, the bottom line is, I don't know what the word is, very like raw, but people are dying in their homes um, across the country in poor housing. Um, They're being neglected, they're being abused, their lives are being put at risk. And I mean, there's been news stories proving that only a few weeks ago, a tenant um, was found dead in her home who had died three years ago. Complaints had been made to the housing association that they could smell rotten meat, there was maggots, all sorts of complaints. Yet it took three years for that tenant to be found. Um, it's that just, I think, encompasses the the idea of tenants being neglected. Yes, it may seem extreme, but then the thousands of people that I've come across and I've spoken to since starting this, it's just obvious forms of neglect. What needs to happen from now? What would you say to social landlords? So social, the bottom line is they need to, they need to care. Nothing can be fixed without them caring. The attitude and culture needs to change. That's the bare minimum. Without that, nothing else will change. I cannot sit in front of these housing associations and councils and argue with them if they're not willing to negotiate that. You wouldn't go into a hospital and expect the nurses and doctors not to care for you as a patient. You wouldn't go send your child to school and expect teachers not to, to prioritise um, your child's needs at education. So why is it with social housing, social housing landlords, or landlords in general, why is it that they're not prioritising their needs of the tenants, even though the tenants are paying them rent, they're funding their, their wages, they pay their bills at the end of the month, they are literally keeping you in your jobs, yet they are being abused, and I use that word because that's exactly what it is, whether it's tenants being abused within their homes, being injured, or social housing providers and members of staff abusing their power and authority um, and using that against tenants is happening and they're being neglected. If this was a child, and I often say this, and a parent was doing it to a child, social services would be called straight away, safeguarding that child's being neglected, that child's not being looked after, they're being abused. Why is it any different with children in poor housing and adults, vulnerable adults in a lot of cases with disability and mental health, why is it any different with them? And the only thing I can think back to is because it's a public body providing this service, which is substandard, but it's still a public body, which you wouldn't expect because it comes from government level down, you wouldn't expect to be doing this or have been doing this for so long, but it's been happening. (laughs) It's been happening and it will continue to happen because there's no regulation. There's no one holding them to account. There's no um, deterrence for these housing associations and landlords to stop what it is they're 
allowing to happen. There's poor structure in these housing associations and councils, and there's a culture where no one cares. And without that, it always comes down to that last thing. If they don't care, nothing will change. Do you, do you think change will come? It, it will have to. I, I mean, I, have, I genuinely have no plan of going absolutely anywhere. So for any housing association or council out there listening, if they think I'm just going to disappear and I won't continue exposing them and going around the country and putting pressure on, then, I mean, I started a year ago, I'm still going and I've managed to come this far. I, mean, I can tell them categorically I'm not going anywhere. So they need to sort sort it out. And not just them, but also people within government they need to realize too i have no intention of going anywhere and this needs to be sorted it needs to be addressed like i said 40 years ago people were complaining about this and nothing was ever done it's about time now that it's treated as a priority because what more is it going to take is it going to take another grenfell to happen is it going to take for people to die in their homes what is it going to take i don't, I don't get it I, you would think grenfell was enough for decisions to be made it all seems like very much like pr and i know today i'm very like frustrated because of everything that's happened but that is all it seems, people talking and no action happening. And that's, I'm, I'm sick of just talking happening. I'm sick, tenants are sick of just hearing rhetoric from officials and housing associations, councils, right down to subcontractors. They don't care for that. What is that going to do when their relative dies in one of their homes? What, what is their sorry going to do? It's going to do absolutely nothing. It needs to be sorted and it needs to be sorted ASAP. Well, that, that was really, really powerful, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Just just the number of disclaim, disrepair claims, is it, is it just a result of homes being in a bad state or are there some other reasons as well? Um, I mean, it's definitely one of the reasons uh, there, there's clearly been a rise in cases. Um, but there are, there are a variety of reasons, actually, which have led to this. Um, one thing that was a concern that was raised was a change in law, actually, that came about okay. um, in 2018, but it was fully implemented in 2020, and it's the Homes Fitness for Human Habitation Act 2018. Okay. Um, so essentially what that did was broaden the scope for which tenants could bring their landlords to court over issues they were facing to do with disrepair. Um, and there was concerns at the time that it would increase the amount of claims brought against social landlords. Um, mm. However, I have spoken to uh, both co-authors of the Act and they, they don't believe that. And I hear, um, I've heard from, I, I interviewed Giles Peaker and he explained to me what the Fitness Act is about. Um, I asked him, does he think uh, this is behind the rise in risk repairs? And he disagrees. Um, so here he is uh, explaining this and explaining exactly why the rising cases have come about. There was concerns raised that it would, um, the act would increase the number of disrepair claims brought against social landlords. What's your opinion on the increase? What's causing the increase? Um, well, I very much doubt that it's the, it's the act um, because um, <laughs> it brought more problems into into scope that tenants could deal with but that uh, you know, it didn't in itself increase the number of people there to to actually bring these claims um i think the the the, the changes in the housing disrepair sector do go back really they go back to uh to laspo legal aid sentencing and punishment of offenders act in in 2013 which took um disrepair effect or housing conditions claims out of legal aid scope 
and so uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people you know, law centers legal aid practices that had been doing these cases um, uh, no longer did because they weren't eligible for legal aid um, and they became increasingly funded by uh, usually known as no win no fee agreements conditional fee agreements and at the same pretty much exactly the same time um, indeed via via laspo in part uh, it was made much much harder for uh, personal injury claims to be brought in that way particularly lower value personal injury claims and i think we saw a lot of the um the uh, claims management companies and indeed solicitors practices that had been doing you know sort of bulk personal injury claims uh, make a move into into doing disrepair uh, and that just seems to have been steadily increasing. Um, you know, it was certainly there before uh, before uh, the act came into force, and you know that rise I think has just sort of continued rather than the, the act making any great change. I mean, the issue is complicated. I, I'm I'm not personally a fan of um, claims management companies, and I'm certainly not a fan of. Uh, if you like, sort of uh, bulk claims merchants moving in to the sector because they don't know what they're doing, either practically or, or legally. And they do operate on a sort of you know pilot high and, and uh, do it as cheaply as possible model. Um, they do often, I think, overcharge tenants. They charge extortionate success fees. Um, and they don't handle the case as well. So I don't think they're actually in the tenants' interests, they're not actually you know, particularly, I think, helping tenants. But the other side is that you know, what this shows is that there are a lot of social landlord properties that are in a bad state. You know, this is the mechanism by which tenants can in, uh, attempt to enforce um, improvements in their conditions. And if claims are being brought almost entirely, uh, they'll be for good reason because there is, there, you know, there are issues and the, and the, the landlord hasn't dealt with them. So on on the one hand, you know, the, the ways in which the uh, if you like the expansion has has rolled out, I'm I'm not keen on because I don't think it's doing tenants any favours. But the flip side is there is clearly very extensive unmet need here. Um, you know that there are a lot of properties that are not in good condition, and there are a lot of tenants who are not getting. Uh, the works and improvements done and and uh, and resorting to claims because of that so the answer the first answer is to what social landlords can do is actually do the bloody works um it's is you know it's been a it's been a refrain um certainly was while we were bringing the uh, bringing the act in you know this is this was an opportunity for them to actually take stock to review their 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 properties to consider what improvements did need to be made to bring them up to a reasonable condition. Um, they had you know, a couple of years really to do that, but uh, sadly, I think mostly haven't. And the, the best way to avoid a housing conditions claim is, is not to have poor quality housing. Having said that, you know, if, they do if they do find themselves up against, should we say, people who are bringing poor quality claims, uh, claims that realistically shouldn't have been brought, and again, this is the, one of the merits of having decent solicitors do this, and one of the merits of having it funded under legal aid was that uh, was that cases had to be good quality. You know, they had to pass a threshold for for people to bring them. 
uh, and it may be that that sort of quality control is 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 lacking. The answer is if you're facing poor claims, fight them. You know, don't don't settle them. They'll just come back for more. If they're good claims, obviously try and settle them as quickly as possible. Do the works and try and settle them. You know, don't don't drag them out, which is unfortunately my experience. What happens a lot of the time? Fail to respond. Fail to do the works fail to agree works after an inspection um, and just drag it out. And that's always going to rack up costs against them. Some really interesting comments there from Giles Peaker, who's a partner at Anthony Gold Solicitors and is dealing with this sort of stuff on, on a daily basis. Um, but the law's about to change, Grunier, isn't it? Um, and could these changes potentially bring a bit of relief to social landlords? I don't know, do you want to just tell me a little bit more about what, what, what's coming up? Um, yeah, there is a potential change in law coming up for disrepair claims, and it would be similar to the ones um, what's in place for personal injury claims. So it would introduce fixed recoverable costs for disrepair. Um, the legislation is expected about 12 to 18 months. Social landlords do believe it's going to be good for them. However, I spoke to the other author of the Fitness Act, Barrister Justin Bates, and he kind of had a stark warning for social landlords about this. Um, and here he is explaining what that, what the impact could be and um, the potential dangers of it. There is a change in law proposed at the moment that could introduce fixed recoverable costs for disrepair claims. It's similar to the one that's in place for personal injury claims. Can you tell me a bit about that and what the implications of it would be? So at the moment, the, the position with disrepair claims is, is normal cost rules. The basic rule is the loser has to pay the winner's costs. And if you can't agree the amount of those costs, then it goes off to a judge, a special costs judge, and he decides how much should be paid by the loser. Um, the, the critical thing to know with that with how that works is that the loser has to pay the other side's cost at their true commercial rate. So if a solicitor costs £200 an hour and he spends four hours on it, then that's what, £800. The concern from many social landlords is that leads to a lot of costs being recovered. Um, it leads to quite big bills being racked up fairly quickly. And one of the things the government's proposing is effectively doing away with that way of doing costs. What will happen if their reform goes through is that for most disrepair cases, there will simply be a fixed tariff of legal costs that can be charged to the loser. And it won't necessarily bear any relationship to what work was actually done. So if it was a, even if it was a really difficult case and you spent 15 hours preparing it, let's say, you get paid X. And if it was a really easy case that was open and shut, you get paid X. So X is almost certainly going to be a lot lower than your actual time spent costs in most, in most situations. So what it's going to mean is that for winners, they're going to recover almost certainly less than they've actually incurred in legal costs on, uh, from the other side. And that's gonna have two consequences. Um, the first is it's going to stop 
one of the very important things lots of legal aid solicitors do and lots of law centers do, which is cross subsidizing. Because if you win a case and you charge your private client rates, you can use effectively, you use the money from that to subsidize the cases you don't win and where you don't get to recover any costs. Um, it's using one bit of your business to subsidize another bit. So for example, you almost never win a possession claim as a tenant solicitor, for example. You, there's almost always some form of possession order. Um, so you never get your costs. And so your disrepair costs offset the, offset the running costs of that part of the business. More significantly, I think what it's going to do is it's going to drive out your general legal aid, law centre, start tile solicitors. And what it's going to do is promote, protect and encourage the kind of claims farmers that most housing associations really dislike. Because if you're only going to recover, let's say, a thousand pounds per case, the reality is you can't have a solicitor spend very much time on it. What you can do is have a, an unqualified or semi-qualified paralegal spend time on it, subject to very minimal supervision by a solicitor. The only people that are going to have the, the business models, the volume of work and the, the employee structures to make fixed costs work is the very claims farmers where you've got 40 paralegals sitting in a converted warehouse somewhere in Hull doing all of these cases. They're the only people that are going to be able to make this funding arrangement work. And so the, the plan, which is to try and drive these people out by recovering what they can, limiting what they can recover, is going to massively backfire. It's going to promote the very companies that housing associations hope would go out of business. What do you think legally the answer is, or is there a better legal answer to this situation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's two answers to it. One is landlords, and in particular social landlords, just need to get better at doing repairs and need to be uh, more proactive in terms of surveying their stock from time to time to identify problems before they're complained about. And secondly, to do the repairs as soon as the complaint is raised. Um, our repairing standards for rented property in this country are not particularly exacting. Um, a requirement your home be fit for human habitation is not a very high standard. A requirement that the structure and the exterior not have holes in it and not be falling down is not a particularly high standard. Um, frankly, I would be very happy if there were no disrepair cases ever fought because landlords just did the work. Um, that's certainly one part of it. Being more realistic, given that cases will always have to be fought and there'll always be some things that go wrong. Uh, I think the answer is to bring back the position as it was before 2012, go back to legal aid existing for disrepair cases. Now, I suppose you know, many people listening to this will say, well, of course, the lawyer would say that. That's the you know, lawyers feathering their own nest, bring back more, more legal aid. But one of the things that I'm not sure people appreciated is that you, you couldn't just, as a, as a claimant or a claimant solicitor, you couldn't just award yourself legal aid and go off and run these cases. Legal aid cases are, uh, still are, um, for the few that exist in the housing field, they're, they're subject to what's called the merits test. Someone outside of the firm of solicitors, generally a barrister like me, has to read the papers and has to say, yes, this has a sufficiently high chance of success and it's got a sufficiently high chance of recovering enough money to make it worthwhile for the taxpayer to fund it. That means we should go forward. The, the legal aid filter weeds out 
cases that aren't worth enough money because they're too minor or cases that just aren't disrepair. And if you take that away, you're left with a situation where there's no filter and claims farmers can just issue hundreds of claims. Merits doesn't really matter. Um, some will get through, damages will be awarded, etc. So you would actually save money if you brought back legal aid um, for these cases. You'd also save money because the, re the reality is, I would say a large proportion of my legal aid disrepair cases that I brought, we, we won. And I don't think I'm exceptional in that. I think most legal aid lawyers win their disrepair cases. That's one of the consequences of doing the, the, the merits check at the beginning. And if you win, there's never a, a call on the legal aid board for legal aid agency, as they are now, sorry, for, for the money because it's paid by the other side. So it, it, it never actually involves the legal aid budget having to spend the money. Now, I appreciate to listeners of this podcast, many of whom will be housing association officers and CEOs and CFOs, etc. There may be no call on the legal aid budget, but there is a call on their budget because they have to pay the, have to pay the costs. But the answer to that is I come back to my first point, do the repairs, just make sure your stock meets our fairly minimal standards and you won't have a problem. That's really, really interesting. But I suppose the next question is, where does that leave tenants, Grunya? What will the impact of the change in law have on them? Actually, I, I don't think it's going to be very good. I spoke to uh, uh, Dorota Pileski, so she's a managing associate at law firm Trowers and Hammonds. And she said it would be good for housing associations. Uh, she represents housing associations, said it would be good for them, but not good for tenants. And she also told me, so the FOI that I did only applied to councils because housing associations aren't subject to the Act. She told me that um, housing associations are facing the exact same problems. I'll let, her, <laughs> I'll let her tell you herself. So here she is with some advice for the sector. So the figures um, that I gathered showed that disrepair claims against councils are on the rise. Uh, you represent housing associations is it the same across the board um it's the same across the board um in in terms of the amount of claims that we now get i'd say in the last 18 months to two years they've been um on an upward trajectory even before that they were going up but it's it's we've seen a steep rise at the beginning of the pandemic we thought oh we'll probably have a bit of respite that probably lasted for a few weeks and the claims just kept coming in. What, what do you think is behind the rise? I think essentially it's the fact that we have claims management companies that I would say probably previously dealt with PPI claims. So those have gone out of the window. They probably dealt with personal injury claims where there is a fixed fee regime in place now. So those cases are less lucrative. So they've turned their attention to something else, and that something else is social landlords. So I think they know social landlords, obviously, large organisations, they can pay out. Uh, it's probably a lot easier to go after a social landlord than a private individual landlord, especially where there's an assured short-hold tenancy. So as much as there are safeguards in place for those tenants where you can't have a retaliatory eviction, but after you've dealt with any complaint of disrepair you can still get around that you can still evict your tenant social landlords aren't going to do that and can't do that so that's why I think social landlords are the target and that's why those cases are going up certainly in relation to social landlords. What is your caseload like when it comes to disrepair how much of this is taken up by? So I would say definitely the vast proportion of my caseload and my colleagues' caseloads in our team is taken up with disrepair claims. I would estimate that 
prior to disrepair claims taking off. Well, we always had some, probably about 20% of the caseload overall would be disrepair claims. I'd say that's now been turned on its head. I'd say probably 80% of the caseload is disrepair work. Um, to the extent that we have taken on more staff to deal with it, that, that's how much we've got. With regard to just the whole issue of disrepair, what, what are the biggest challenges facing social landlords? Um, so, I mean, the, the biggest challenges are in dealing with these claims. I think a lot of, we get questioned quite often to say, well, what can we do to, to, to stop these claims coming in? And you can't actually stop somebody making the claim. It's what you do with it once you've got the claim. I think that's, that's the answer. Or even turning back the clock a bit more, what do you do to, to, to prevent a tenant having that opportunity to make that claim? So it's quite hard because ideal world, you you would have all your repairs done on time. Um, there would be nothing outstanding. That's never going to happen. You're always going to have those that, that there's human error. That, that it, it's not a perfect world, is it? Um, but in terms of what you can do to try and prevent these claims from arising, um, if a tenant reports a claim to you, then investigate it. It might seem trivial. It might seem as if you might think, well, this is a serial complainant or it's this tenant again. Don't ever think like that. Just take a step back, investigate every single um, report of disrepair that you get. If there is an issue, get that repair done within a reasonable period of time. Now, that's what the law, the legislation says. What's a reasonable period of time depends on what type of disrepair you're looking at. If it's a uh, collapsed ceiling because there's been a leak clearly you're going to get that done quickly if it's a slow leak somewhere that's not causing that much issue you might be able to not do it as quickly as something that's gushing through a ceiling but get it done within a reasonable period of time uh, if there are access issues then deal with those don't just think well our contractors carded that tenant three times they haven't responded that's it uh, close that job down which is what contractors do sometimes do you've got to deal with that disrepair you've got to get into the property if there are access issues make an injunction application to get in there don't let it fester and don't let it just be kicked off into the long grass and also make sure that other departments know what to do if they get a complaint of disrepair I've had instances where a complaint has been made to for example the customer um, complaints team, um, customer services, rather, I should say, and the complaint may have been made by the tenant social worker. That was never fed through back to the repairs team. Once that complaint has been made to you as a social landlord, to any landlord, to any organisation, that's it, you've got that complaint. So just make sure that other teams and departments are aware of what to do. Also, don't just say to a tenant if they've called, for example, customer services, well, you've got to ring the repairs reporting line. Make sure that that message is passed on. Uh, you can't just bat it off and say, you tenant, you do it. Um, I mean, those are the main kind of points that I've pulled out that I think that uh, are, are kind of the key to trying to avoid these claims. Or so that then when you do get a claim, once it comes in, you've got repair records that are kept accurately, they're up to date, and you can say, well, look, this is when the tenant reported it. This is the date by which we said we were going to action it. And in fact, 
we completed it, as our repair records show on this date. And look, I can show you the job tickets and the job numbers. It was all been done. Ideal world, I know, but that's that's how to deal with them. I did want to speak to you about this upcoming change in the law or potential change in the law, which brings in um, could bring in a cap on recoverable costs. What is your view of that and the impact it could have? Definitely a cap on costs and fixed costs is a, a very good thing. What it will mean is that if, depending on when the case settles, at what stage, whether it's pre-action and how much it's worth, then there's going to be a whole tariff of the maximum amount of costs that a tenant solicitor can claim. Which means that whereas now, and we've had these instances, we get bills of costs for anything from 12,000 to ridiculously 30,000 pounds, we've had one recently. Um, and clearly, when we're not going to pay those kind of amounts, but you do then have an argument about those costs. In an average case, you're still paying probably five to six thousand pounds in costs, I would say, in an average argued case. Those costs are going to be slashed right back. I, I think that the figures when I looked was kind of 600, possibly up to a thousand-ish, um, depending on what level they get to at trial and pre-trial steps. So it's going to make a massive difference because. Where social landlords' budgets are being hit is in relation to the claims for costs. Whereas a tenant might recover damages of, I think, an average of £1,000. Um, the most we tend to pay out on the more serious cases is probably £5,000. The costs are astronomical in comparison. Those figures I gave you, 12000 30000 etc., so it's going to make a huge, huge difference for social landlords, thankfully. And hopefully it will reduce the amount of cases that come through the doors because those that are clearly not going to be that profitable for the claims management organisations, but hopefully they won't be pursuing or they shouldn't be pursuing because it won't be worth it for them. So whilst you will still have some cases, whilst you will still, yes, have to pay damages out to tenants, the costs are going to be significantly less. Thank you. I, I did hear there was a concern raised that claims management firms might be the only kind of business model that would survive these changes. What, what, what do you think about that? I think he's probably right, which won't be good for tenants. Um, I totally agree with that, because what will happen is um, that the, there is a success fee that is taken from tenants damages in any event at the moment and I suspect that a lot of these claims management companies will push that success fee as far and as high as they can so the only people well whilst it will be a great advantage to a social landlord the tenants will suffer because where there is a genuine claim um, and there are genuine claims for damages then it's the tenants uh, damages that will be affected. Okay, so there seems to be a bit of consensus on the advice to landlords then. For sure, yeah. The advice is, if there's a problem with disrepair, just go in and do the work. That will solve a lot of the issues straight away. I mean, pretty much every lawyer told me that, irrespective of whether they were representing tenants or representing social landlords. And then obviously also, like, if, the, you know, if, the, if it's not a good claim, then fight that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So have you spoken to sort of the councils and the housing associations or their representative bodies about, about this issue? Uh, yeah, so um, I 
spoke to um, the National Housing Federation, which represents um, housing associations. Uh, so Catherine Ryder, she's the director of policy and research there. So here's what she said in response to these issues. Socialising residents should expect to live in a good quality home that meets their needs. It's also right that they have issues of disrepair fixed quickly. Work is ongoing across the country to put right issues of poor quality housing. This is a priority for the sector. Where flats and houses are nearing the end of their usable life, we want to work with national and local government to renew homes and estates. Um, I also spoke to the local government association. So spokesperson there told me, councils want all ten tenants to live, to be able to live in safe and secure, high quality housing. The vast majority of social landlords are responsible and provide decent housing to tenants, but recent reports have shone a light on the need for continuous learning and improvement to be made. Anyone who is unhappy with a service provided by their local housing authority should submit a complaint directly to seek a local resolution. But if they're unhappy with the outcome, uh, the option to escalate the complaint to the housing ombudsman exists. So recent government proposals will improve and strengthen the role of the ombudsman in dealing with complaints, which should achieve a faster resolution of complaints and achieve better outcomes for tenants and social landlords. Okay, interesting. So they're kind of looking ahead to some of the changes uh, that are coming. Yeah. Gronia, what, what do you think then? Um, you obviously have kind of seen the landscape and what's coming down, down the line. Do you think we'll continue to see this rise in disrepair cases? Honestly, I, I would be very surprised if we didn't continue to see it. Um, okay. I, I just believe it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of resource to address this. And, mm. you know, although there is some movement and promises are being made. I just don't know if it's enough right now to reflect the problem. But we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, definitely watch watch this space. Um, OK, well, that has been another episode of the Housing Podcast. Thanks very much for talking us through that Gronya it's been really interesting um, you can uh, look at some of the work that Gronya's been doing on this subject on the Inside Housing website insidehousing.co.uk and until next time thank you